Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, Associate Pastor Ron King continues a series called What is Going On, where we read the entire Bible in a year. The letter to the Colossians helps us understand who the real Jesus is by describing his nature and works. Jesus is not a bland, passive, or simply a nice idea. Instead, Jesus was honest, he was powerful, and unpredictable. He's gracious towards sinners and hostile towards sin. Don't settle for a cheap Jesus. Strive to know the real Jesus the best you can. After the message and throughout the week, read the letter to the Colossians. Also, check out nwhills.com hub, that's H-U-B, for additional resources like book overviews, reading plans, and application questions. Now, here's today's message. We want to welcome you here to Northwest Hills. I hope this will be a place where you know Jesus and you um, dive into that and you start to love him and start to figure out how to live for him in community together and that you can find a mission that God had called you to, which is, in general for all of us, to make him known. And that's what we're about this morning. It's about the book of Colossians, which we're going to dive into And if you're just beginning your investigation into who Jesus is, I'm going to say this to you briefly. Um, I typically tell people, start here. Start by reading in the Gospels. Um, All of us have been in the journey of reading all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. That's about us not getting Bible trivia in our brains, but knowing Jesus so that we might love him and serve him, follow him, make him known. But... For those of you who are just beginning the journey, I would just steer you to the Gospels, the stories of uh, first four books in the Bible, especially Luke. Um, If you start in the book of Luke, you'll discover you know a couple of those stories, especially the first start of Luke where it talks about his birth. So the Christmas story is probably familiar to you. Or the book of John, depending on how you're wired. And John starts out with this amazing description in the first 14 verses of who Jesus is, and then Every chapter, he circles back to things that you probably did not recognize about who Jesus is. So I'd encourage you to start there. And if you uh, finish that, and then you just want a deep dive into some profound descriptions of Jesus, circle back to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and Colossians, which we are in this morning, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And we're going to read that in just a bit. But in your bulletin, we've got a little handout for you this morning. And on the handout, it's got those three passages that really do speak to um, a short, profound description of who Jesus is. And on the back side, um, notes for you to jot down this week as you're going through the book of Colossians, some truths about Jesus that you're observing that Paul is um, teaching out. Now, if you know a little bit about church history or down through the years, the centuries, um, and a little bit about Reformation history, a turning point in the church, you know that Erasmus and Luther were two giants on opposite sides of the argument often. But they both came to the same conclusion that Jesus is central to Scripture. Erasmus said the Bible will give you give Jesus to you in an intimacy so close that he would be less visible to you 
if he stood before your eyes. That's a great line. And Luther would say that the Bible is the door that's open wide for you to understand who Jesus is. And the entire scripture deals only with Jesus everywhere. So this morning, we're going to dive into the book of just a little bit, just to whoop your appetite, in the book of Colossians. And we're thinking about something really substantial. And that is who Jesus is. Because Paul is writing into a church that was struggling with a whole set of false narratives about who Jesus was. So he's going to take his first two chapters and just dive deep into theology, helping us understand specifically who Jesus is. And then the second half of the book really is about how do I live that out? What are the implications for me? The people in Colossae were struggling with these false teachings about Jesus, kind of a syncretistic thought about Jesus. That is a combination from a lot of different sources, from Jewish sources and Oriental sources and Gnostic sources. And some of their teachers wanted to define Jesus on their own terms. Wow, that sounds familiar to my culture that I live in today. If we would go downtown and survey people in Corvallis and just ask the question, hey, who do you think Jesus is? Think about all the different answers that we would get to that question. Most people just making it up, just defining Jesus in a way that's comfortable for them or fits their box, a Jesus that they want to define. But that's not centrally what scripture is teaching us. We live in an age of relativism. That's no surprise to any of us, where many would argue that Jesus is simply a nice idea or a man-made religious construct, or Jesus is whoever we want him to be. And we can't really know the truth, so we can't know the truth about him. But here's the problem. That, that runs counter to the central argument of scripture, of God's word. The Bible claims that he can be known, his nature, his character, his works, his activity. And he can be known so that we would be led into an irresistible relationship with the one who loves us and wants to be known. The Bible's central claim is that you can know with certainty who Jesus is. And his, its description of him is true and it's reliable and it's authoritative. But there are some issues here. Not only do we live in an age of relativism where people are redefining Jesus so that he would be comfortable for them, but you should also know that the Bible claims there is a real spiritual battle going on. And that spiritual battle is for your heart and your allegiance. And it posits that Satan is real and has an agenda to mislead, to obfuscate, to confuse you and delude us so that we would not know who Jesus is. And that might feel like a huge pill to swallow for you, that there is actual real evil in the world or an evil one in the world. But the, Bar the Bible makes an argument that not only does that exist, but part of the chief agenda of the evil one is that you would be deluded and misunderstand who the real Jesus is. So ask yourself, what if 
that's true? What if my understanding about Jesus is potentially wrong? What if I could know the real Jesus? What would that look like? How would I experience him and know him? And then there's the confusion sown by all those who should know better throughout the course of church history. Icons of the Orthodox Church, stained glass windows in European cathedrals, and Sunday school art in low church America all depict Jesus as placid and gentle and tame. Really? That, that's not the Jesus that I see in Scripture. Philip Yancey, the author, argues the Jesus of the Bible was searingly honest, frighteningly powerful, often offensive, and notoriously unpredictable. He had an uncompromising blend of graciousness towards sinners and hostility towards sin. What we all can agree on is for the past 2,000 years, there's been this widely divergent set of opinions about Jesus. The problem for the church in Colossae and for us is that all those opinions, they seriously mess with the health of the church, with our own personal lives and how we're living in this day, and how people think about themselves and God. So Paul takes the first two chapters of to correct mistaken theology. And here's the thing. When Jesus is misunderstood, and most typically, that means we're shrinking Jesus down to our size into a Jesus that's comfortable to get along with, then we end up with impotent faith and life. The church and our personal lives atrophy, especially when we miniaturize Jesus. And when the transformational healing and power of the real Jesus is sacrificed on the altar of what's palatable to me, what's acceptable, then I get an anemic, uncompelling substitute. Who wants that kind of Jesus? Not me. That kind of Jesus is not worth following or loving or making known. So at the heart of things in Colossians is this clear, arresting explanation of who Jesus is. And for some of you, this will be pretty stunning when you hear what Paul has to say. For all of us, it should be a little breathtaking. So I'd like us to stand, and we're just going to read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And uh, we're going to just think through this together. And I'll read it, and at the end... Um, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and as our tradition goes, you say, oh man, that's so great, or thanks be to God, or something like that. That would be great. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So here's what I'm really eager for this week. As you read through the book of Colossians, and again, it's only a four-chapter book, so you could do that multiple times every day if you wanted to. And as you do, I'd love for you to think centrally about what's being communicated about Jesus, his nature, his character, his actions, and simply write it down. This morning, we're going to talk about just five of them. There's a lot more in Colossians, and I hope As we do, it'll spur your imagination. It'll deepen your theology about who Jesus is. So here are the five that I identified just for us to have a conversation with about this morning. And they are these. First, Jesus is the image of the invisible. You saw that at the very beginning phrase in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible. Second, Jesus is the creator of all. Third, Jesus is the glue in him. All things hold together. Fourth, Jesus is a knowable mystery. A knowable mystery. And fifth, Jesus is the ultimate transformer for those of you who are engaged by that kind of imagery. So Paul begins here. Jesus is the image of the invisible. He says this. He is the image of the invisible God, verse 15. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Verse 19. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, he says in Colossians 2.9. And 2.17, he says, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And those statements should make you stand back and say, Really? Like, that is not an anemic Jesus. Paul is clearly saying what the Gospels say, what Jesus claimed for himself, what is the central message of Jesus, that he is fully human and fully divine, fully God. In him, all the fullness, not part of or pieces of or representations of, but all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Think about how radical that is. Like no Muslim friends that I have could imagine Muhammad calling himself to be Allah. Or no Jew could imagine Moses claiming to be Yahweh. Hindus cannot imagine one God above all, certainly that God becoming human. Buddhists have no categories to conceive of a sovereign God in the flesh. And those who claim that there is no way to know who Jesus was whether he was a historical figure or a myth, they have no place to understand a tangible, real, fully human, fully God, Jesus, come to earth so that we might know him. He's the image of the invisible, Paul says. George Buttrick, the former chaplain at Harvard, recalls the students would come to his office often and sit down and um, tell him, yeah, I don't believe that God exists. And Patrick would give this disarming reply. Well, sit down and tell me the kind of God you don't believe exists. The, don't, the God that you don't believe in. Because I don't believe in that God either, probably. The next time you're having a spiritual conversation with someone, ask them. Now, tell me about your definition of Jesus. Like, who do you think that he is? 
odds are he's not the Jesus that's communicated in the text of Scripture because we've weakened him. We've shrunk him to our own size, which is heresy. That's the worst thing you can possibly do. So Paul in Colossians is inviting us that don't believe or believe in a small Jesus to sit down in a chair in front of the real Jesus and understand who the real Jesus is. Not to believe in the lie of culture or of our own imaginations, but believe in Jesus who is mind-bendingly more than you can conceive of. This same theme is sounded out in every chapter of the Gospel of John, that Jesus is wildly beyond our human categories for him. This is the Jesus we worship on Sunday mornings. This is the Jesus we live for, that we love, that we make known and give our lives to. And admittedly, that truth is difficult to grasp. Even the disciples had a struggle understanding who were walking every day with Jesus. That's why Philip would turn to Jesus and say, oh, just show us the Father and we would know. And Jesus responds, really? I've been walking with you this whole time. You don't know me? Jesus is saying to Philip, I am the fullness of God in human form. I am the image of the invisible. If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. When friends ask, can anyone really know God? You have a powerful answer. I have a powerful answer. The answer is yes. Look at Jesus. Look at the real Jesus. Because he is the image of the invisible in human form. And here's the second description of Jesus found in Colossians. It's stunning. It's bold and audacious what Paul writes. That he is the creator of all. Starting in verse 15, the second half of it says, He's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Wrap your head around that. That's crazy, isn't it? Can we just say that? That's stunning what's being taught here. Cosmology, the study of the origin, development, structure, history, and future of the entire universe is a scientific discipline that operates with the assumption we don't have the answer yet. And so every so often, cosmologists will say, wow, we've studied uh, the latest from the Hubble telescope or whatever, and we've made this great discovery of this new part of where origins came from. And Paul makes this statement Um, yeah, but there is a way to know really the true origins and the true origins are found in Jesus. They begin and end there. And we shouldn't be afraid of science, brothers and sisters, because ultimately science uncovers the mystery, the profound wonder of the creative genius of Jesus. There are reasons this statement about his power and his preeminence is so incredibly difficult to conceive of because I want you to notice how all-encompassing 
what Paul just wrote is planets and pets, elephants and quarks and dark matter all were created by Jesus, he says. Presidents and kings, dynasties, and those wielding power behind the throne, they were created by Jesus. And ultimately, they serve him and his purposes. Could Paul make a more grandiose claim about Jesus? I don't think so. He is the firstborn, he starts writing in the second half of verse 15. Firstborn by that, he means he is both preeminent over all and preexistent before all. I was dogged this morning for wearing green by um, some of you who are orange weather wearers. And so I apologize if I offended anybody first. I don't want to say that. Um, but uh, I was thinking about mottos. Every time I read this verse, I think about mottos. Different schools had different mottos. And I don't know if you know this, but the duck's motto, it's a Latin phrase, mens agitat molem, which means mind moves mass, or poetically mind moves mountains. Apparently they got the scripture wrong there. I think it's faith moves mountains, but um, I'll give that to you, ducks. My college that I went to, our motto is Christus primitum tennis. Christ preeminent over all. I like that one better than Oregon. Sorry, just saying. <laughs> and that's what Paul meant by preeminent. Jesus is the agent and the goal of all creation. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1. His involvement in creation is exhaustive, but he's also at work in every moment of every day in you and me and my family in this world. He doesn't make the watch and walk away. He holds all the world and my life in his hands, all of history, and he actively brings cohesion and purpose to all of it by his sovereign power. Can I get an amen for that? <laughs> Here's the third radical description of Jesus in Colossians. Jesus is the glue. By that I mean in him all things hold together, Scripture says. That is, without him the molecule flies apart. My relationship spin out of control. My life is unmoored. Without him there's no ultimate purpose or direction and random chaos ensues. And so we should rightly stand in awe of the lordship of Christ over all reality because without him, everything falls apart. He is the hero and the culmination and the heir of all things, Paul writes. And all the universe is calibrated for the lordship of Jesus. That's powerful stuff, isn't it? These first three points intersect and are intended to like stagger us, I believe. The real Jesus, it should, he should make our jaw drop more than once every day. And yet the God of the Bible made known to us Jesus is more than an object of awe and worship. We're invited into relationship with him. Isn't that amazing, incredible because of this fourth characteristic that Paul teaches about him, that Jesus is a knowable mystery. 
We find it in chapter 1, 26 to 27, and chapter 2, 2 through 3, and chapter 4. Listen to chapter 1 where Paul says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations about, uh, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's more than a trace of mystery in Jesus. If someone says they have all the answers and can describe him completely and comprehensively, don't believe it. We are still getting to know Jesus. And those of us who are older saints, I include myself there, are still getting to know Jesus. And those of you who are just starting to get to him, you're still getting to know him. Because there is no boundary, there is no plumb deep enough to know all of this about who he is. But Paul's heart is still that we should understand, that we should know this mystery, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, Paul writes in chapter 2, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that's why we're reading through the Bible this year, to understand the riches of all wisdom and knowledge. Paul's description of the mystery points to that which was unknown in the Old Testament times, and yet now revealed through the person and work of Jesus. In Ephesians, Paul writes of this mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, that we, not Jews, are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel that we're invited into the relationship and to the activity of Jesus. You and I, every one of us are invited into there. Paul is saying that the plan of God for our salvation revealed through Jesus is this delightful paradox of getting to know him better and knowing that I'll never fully know until one day I stand in the presence of Jesus in heaven and go, wow, I didn't know all that. Wow, that's engaging. So when I look in Scripture, when you and I read Scripture, let's reread it with fresh minds and eyes and a heart that longs to know and plumb the depths as much as our small brains can. How can I get my pea-sized brain around the majestic wonder of God in the flesh? Because he helps me do it. He, he engages me in my mind and my heart. He makes himself known, the invisible, through the visible Jesus. I can no more understand the totality of God and Jesus than the cereal I had for breakfast understands the complexity of my wife, Sue. I'm still trying to understand who Sue is. And yet... That's part of the adventure, isn't it? It's a big part of the adventure of life, to know him. A part of what the book of Colossians gives us is this lofty, breathtaking view of the greatness, the grandness of Jesus, which has certainly impacted how I relate with him this week, how I worship him, how I obey him. Yet that description of the nature of Jesus can create distance if I'm not careful. I might think, it's too big for me. It's too deep for me. How I could, I can't possibly 
grab hold of it, so I'm just going to stop trying. Don't. Don't ever stop or don't ever think that you need to know less. Don't ever think that you've got it wired because we don't. And Colossians calls us into this one day at a time through a deepening relationship as we learned in Philippians 2. This same Jesus, fully God, humbled himself and became a servant and was born in our likeness so we would know him. So we would come into relationship with him. He became fully human so that we would love him and we would live for him and we would make him known. And there's this fifth fundamental characteristic that he talks about here. Paul unfolds for us in Colossians. And I know it might sound a bit hooky the way I put it, but he is the ultimate transformer. Verses 13 through 14 in chapter 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul's pressing into what Jesus has accomplished, the great initiative that he took, and taking us from a place of confusion and lostness and hopelessness and bringing us to a place where we experience forgiveness and we experience all of who Jesus is. A place of his kingdom that he's designed for me and he's designed for you as part of his creation. And notice those two words Paul uses. He delivered and he transferred. The first has to do with rescue from a dangerous captivity. Those who have yet to place their faith in Jesus are in a dangerous place, Scripture teaches us. Eternity separated from God and bearing the consequences of our lostness and our sin. And those who place their trust in Jesus are rescued from the tyrannical oppression of sin and Satan. Formerly opposed to God and his kingdom rule, we've been grabbed by the nape of the neck and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. Praise God for that. And that's a massive shift, more than I can fully appreciate. Because not only is it a change of status, but it's a change of our nature, my nature, And that's why Paul will go on to describe in chapter 3 how I take out the old and put on the new. My first message that I ever preached was on Colossians chapter 3. I was in this old Baptist church, and it was very conservative. I was wearing a suit and tie, and um, everyone did at that point. And um, I thought, oh, I've got this great idea. I'm going to... take off the old during the message, and I'm going to have the new underneath. I had a a white fire retardant suit underneath, and um, so I started peeling off the layers of my clothing. I took my coat off, and I took my tie off, kicked my shoes off, and people are starting to get super uncomfortable. (laughs) I took my shirt off, and they're like, oh, it's white underneath, and the people are, and then I I took my belt off, and people are like, oh, he's not, he is not going to do that. I'm like 20 years old, right? So I'm bold. I drop my pants, and I've got these white things underneath that people are like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he did that. And I had a long conversation with the senior pastor afterwards, and, 
And I'm like, oh, like never do that again. But um, it got the point across, I think, because 20 years later, I'm speaking somewhere else, and this guy comes running up to me after church, this random guy, and he's like, Ron, Ron, I am. And he gives me his name. And I'm thinking, where have I heard that name before? He goes, I just became a Christian the day before you, I went to church, the day after I went to church, and I heard you speak on Colossians chapter 3. Here's your points of that message. I had totally forgotten him by then. And he said, and I remember you taking off the old. I'm like, oh, here it comes. Here it comes, you know. But it was an illustration that stuck. And this whole point is this, that Jesus has taken us from the old, And he's in this work in us, in the new, because why? Because he can. He is the creator of all, and all things are done by him and for him. Your personal transformation this week is happening for the glory of God, and so your neighbor might know him. It's not about the works that you're doing. It's about his work. It's not about you. It's about his glory, his majesty, his amazing, stunning Godhood in the flesh. This Jesus that this church is about, who stands at the head of this church and my life and your life. So how does this Jesus seep into our life this week? Here's the first thing. Let me just encourage you. Don't settle for a cheap Jesus. Don't settle Um, This last week, I made my latest internet fiasco purchase, and I received it. Actually, I ordered it like two months ago, and it finally came from China, and um, it was not what I expected. I'll just say that. I was deeply disappointed in the product that I received, and um, I think that illustrates my life at times, your life at times, when Zeb can settle for a cheapened Jesus, then he's not going to have a passion to follow him and to lead his family this week in following him. When you or I do that and settle for a cheap imitation, we weaken ourselves and everyone around us. Let me encourage us as we think through again, as you soak in Colossians to think about exactly what Paul is saying about the person and the work of Jesus. And secondly, don't let the people in your life settle for an imitation Jesus. I have neighbors and friends here in Corvallis who don't know Jesus, not the real Jesus. They don't follow him because their understanding of who Jesus is is paltry. It's not worth following. I pray for opportunity to help them, to get in dialogue with them about who the real Jesus is. And I pray that for you this week, that you would have opportunity to make him known who the real Jesus is this week and to have those kind of conversations. Don't like seek to get into a debate about that. Just simply communicate what the Bible claims about who he is and think about that. Help them think about that because the Holy Spirit's gonna do his work. That's not your work. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But we are people that can make him known, the real Jesus. And that's my prayer for you, for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for uh, the power of the description of Jesus, our Lord. 
in Colossians, and I pray, God, that you would be moving us, you would be strengthening us to see who you are, the real Jesus, and in practical ways to be able to communicate who you are as we follow you to people around us who have settled or who have been deluded. We're not about arguing people in, Lord, to an understanding of who you are. We know that you love to make yourself known. So reveal yourself in deeper, more profound, richer ways to us personally and to our friends this week. We pray this for the honor and glory of the one who deserves it all, Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.